Well, good morning, ladies. It is a delight to be with you this morning, and I know you have been blessed by your study this past week as we've been looking at Jesus before Pilate. So if you have your Bibles, please open to John chapter 18, and we're going to be picking up in verse 28. We know that this is wrapping up this last week of Christ's life. And on Monday, he comes in with a triumphal entry and he's being hailed as Hosanna. On Thursday evening, he has the Lord's Supper with his disciples and that beautiful discourse, his teaching in John 13 through 17. And then we know he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and there he is in agony not for the physical suffering he was about to endure, but because for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus Christ would be separated from the Father and he would take upon himself all of our sin. He was in agony there just before his arrest, his betrayal by Judas, and then he's taken before the Jewish leaders for really a a mockery of a trial. He has three trials in front of the Jews, and then we're going to see three in front of the Romans. One with Pilate, Herod, and then back with Pilate. So as we begin, let's look at John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, can we just stop a moment and look at the hypocrisy of this? They're not going to go inside a Gentile home, a palace of the Gentile ruler, because they might be defiled and unable to eat the Passover, and yet they're manipulating the system to murder a man who really has no charges against him. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. And that is true. The Romans had taken away capital punishment from the Jews, and the Romans were technically the only ones able to carry out that sentence of death. So to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So we see here that Jesus is actually presumed guilty before being proven innocent. Now that's the opposite of what happens in America. In America, we're supposed to be (laughs) assumed innocent until proven guilty, but not so under Roman law. If you were brought before the Romans, you had to be able to prove your innocence. So the religious leaders, after having their mockery of a trial in front of Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest, and they waited until just the break of day to bring the whole high council together, the Sanhedrin, and here they would accuse him of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And it would be that accusation that they would say required the death penalty. And it was here they would take Jesus then to the Roman leader, the Roman governor, Pilate, to pronounce that sentence. Now let's pick back up in verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, 
so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. So Jesus responds to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, with a question. He then explains to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this realm. He said, you say correctly that I'm a king, because then he gives him, this is the purpose. This is the reason that I came into the world, to declare the truth to the world. And then Pilate responds, well, what is truth? We hear people say that today. Can you really define truth? Are there actually absolutes? Well, if there are no absolutes, there cannot be any right or wrong. We know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Pilate was looking into the face of truth, and he missed it. It shows us that we, too, can look into the truth of God's word and miss it. We have to look into the word of God humbly, asking the Holy Spirit to teach us and speak to us because spiritual truths, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, are only appraised or understood by the Spirit. So you have to be a believer. Your spirit man has to have been regenerated through the second birth, new birth in Christ, and his spirit come to live within you for you to be able to understand the things of the spirit. But the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, has been given to us to teach us everything that we need to know. So if we have the Holy Spirit, if we're a believer, when we open the word of God, we should submit ourselves to the word of God, willing to obey whatever God reveals to us through his word, and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us. Pilate looked at truth in the face and missed him. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. He kissed the door to heaven and did not enter. That's why we need to very soberingly evaluate our own lives. Do I truly know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Is he my Lord or do I just know a lot of facts about him? I'm actually studying the book of James with my 11th grade girls life group. And this past week, we were looking at the passage where James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They know who God is, but they don't know him through salvation. They don't, they have not bowed the knee to him. They're not obeying him. So we can know facts without actually living them out. But if we really believe it, it changes how we act. We act out of what we really believe. So am I acting like I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Am I living in such a way that I'm expecting and watching for his return? Do I know that I'm just a pilgrim passing through? That this world is not my home? Jesus is our example for what is true and for how we're to live our lives and what we're supposed to base our lives on. And as we studied this past week, we saw that Jesus was not actually the one being tried. Pilate was. Now, let's look back at verse 39. 
And it's between 38 and 39 that we know from um, Matthew that he then is sent to Herod, who interrogates him, finds no guilt in him, and just sends him right back to Pilate. So pick back up with 39. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You know what is awesome, you include, I included in your handout where we see in all four of the gospels, Christ before Pilate, so that you can take all four gospels and put together the whole picture of what happened with all of his trials. So what we know here from about Barabbas, as we look at all four of the gospels is, he was an insurrectionist, so he's a rebel against Rome. He was a murderer, he was a thief. We know that he was a criminal who was expecting death. And because he was such a notorious criminal, Pilate's thinking, okay, surely they're not gonna want Barabbas. If I offer Barabbas or Christ, surely they will ask that I release Christ because that had been his habit to release a criminal every year at Passover. But the people cried out and the Jewish leaders had gotten the crowd into a frenzy and they were crying out, crucify, crucify. They wanted Jesus' death. Now let's go back to chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And you have to wonder what's going through his mind. I mean, he, he knows that Jesus has said he's the truth, and yet he's this calm demeanor. He's not frantic, recognizing that Pilate has the authority to either have him crucified or set him free. And yet Jesus is calm because he knows Pilate ultimately is not in charge, and we're going to see that he reveals that to Pilate himself. But he's going to have him scourged, thinking, well, surely if we beat him and we scourge him, then the people will feel sorry for him, and maybe they'll want him released. So then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. They're mocking him. We know they spat on him as well. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. We know once again from Matthew that his wife had actually had a dream. Now you can imagine, you know how women were treated in biblical times. A woman would never have interrupted a court proceeding for her husband, the governor, unless it was something extremely urgent and important. Well, she had a message sent to Pilate in the midst of all of this, letting him know he should have nothing to do with this righteous man, that she had been troubled greatly about him in a dream. So when he hears he's claimed to be the son of God, his wife has had this disturbing dream, telling him he should have nothing to do with him, he had to have wondered, could it be? Could he be who he actually claims himself to be? And he entered into the praetorium again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Now listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. 
For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now we know Pilate could never even appear to allow someone who would rival Caesar to stay alive. And so the crowd is hitting him where they know he's weakest and Pilate caves. He caves in to the crowd. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. We also know that they said, let the curse come upon us and upon our children. They cried out for his death. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Lord woke his wife and gave her a disturbing dream and let her know that Jesus was a righteous man and that Pilate should not have anything to do with him. God still works in miraculous ways around the world to reveal truth to people. In fact, in his book, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin, one of our IMB missionaries, that's actually a pseudonym that he wrote under to protect the people that he tells about in his book, he went undercover into communist nations and Muslim nations to try to understand the persecuted church, to try to understand how people can continue to be faithful to the gospel and how the church can continue to spread in the midst of such severe persecution. And what he found was that persecution really ignited the church, caused it to spread even more rapidly. In fact, in communist Russia, he found that under communism, people memorized huge portions of scripture because they didn't always have a copy of God's word with them. They memorized the hymns of the faith. In fact, when one large group of young people got together, they were able to completely recreate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as hundreds of Christian songs, songs of the faith that they had memorized as children because their parents were very diligently passing on the faith to the next generation. Persecution adds a sense of urgency. And I'm afraid sometimes in America we can become very complacent because we've had things easy for so long. We're beginning to see in our own nation a sharp divide between believers and unbelievers, a very polarizing political scene, riots and violence and harm against individuals and businesses. And we see the, we can just see what happened here when the crowd is in a frenzy, the things that can happen when they cry out for death. We see that in our own nation. We've experienced a worldwide pandemic, something we've not ever seen in our lifetime. How immediately the world can be shut down just like that. As we've been studying the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, it's made it come to life for us because we can see how the things, the plagues, the things mentioned in Revelation, we see now how they can happen, that they can be a reality. Well, one of my favorite stories in Nick Ripkin's book is a story about some Muslim men 
that in very different ways all received a copy of God's word. One of them had seen a vision. One of them had had a dream. Christ had come to him in the dream telling him that if he would get a copy of the Bible, he would know the truth. And so he was looking one day, actually in an Islamic bookstore, and he was looking at all these books, and he saw a hardback, just a blue book, kind of stuck out from all the rest of them. He pulled it off the shelf, and it actually was the Bible in his own language. He took it home with him and read through it five times and came to faith in Christ. Well, the, another guy was longing for a copy of God's Word. And he was in the marketplace one day, and a man walked up to him and said, The Holy Spirit prompted me to give you this book. He had no idea, but when he got back into his apartment and opened the book, it was a copy of God's Word. Well, God sovereignly brought these five men who were new converts to Christianity, who each had gotten miraculously a copy of God's Word. God brought them together. They rented an apartment building, and they would meet from midnight to 3 in the morning, reading the Word of God together and asking God to teach them. Well, there was a European doctor, a missionary, that kept emailing Nick as he was going in, and he was going into these persecuted countries, and he was interviewing Christians, quite often having to do it secretly, undercover, so that they would not be exposed and be harmed. And he had his schedule completely worked out. Well, this European doctor kept telling him, you need to come to this little border town in this Muslim nation. And he would respond to the email and say, look, my schedule's packed. It's already planned. These people are already contacted. I can't change my schedule. Well, the missionary doctor sent him another email, and he said, I was a little more, you know, a little stronger in my response. I cannot change my schedule. And he said, and then my schedule was changed for me. He was contacted by some of the people he was supposed to go to. They were under strict surveillance. He wasn't going to be able to go there. And then the next one fell apart as well. So he had two weeks with nowhere to go. So he contacted, he responded to the next email from that doctor and told him, okay, I'm coming. I will be there. And so he gets on a plane. He lands in this little remote town with just a dirt runway on a small plane with a metal building that is their airport. And he sees a white man coming toward him, assuming it's the European missionary doctor that had contacted him. And sure enough, it was. But right behind him were five Muslim men following this doctor and chattering behind him. Well, the doctor asked him, do you know these people? Are they friends of yours? And he says, no, I assume they were with you. And he says, no, they're not with me. Here, this is my cell phone number. Contact me when all is clear. And he just leaves. And so he's thinking, okay, now I know what it's like. I'm not going anywhere with these five men. He starts pulling his suitcase into the airport, and they're gibbering and gibbering. And finally, one of them in broken English says, we are here for you. God has sent you. We believe in Jesus. Well, then he knew that was why he was there. And they took him back to that apartment. And do you know what had happened that morning at 1.30 in the morning? While they were praying, the Holy Spirit said, go to the airport and approach the first white man that gets off the plane because I have sent him here to teach you. Those are the things God does when we get desperate enough to want him and to want to advance his kingdom. When we know that there's nothing we can do apart from him. Well, I heard some of these stories in person last week from Carol Ward. She is a missionary to Uganda and South Sudan, and she is a third-generation missionary. In fact, she and two of the women she was traveling with last week stayed in our home from Saturday to Thursday, and it was an incredible gift and blessing. I really hardly have words for her. 
But we took them out to dinner Tuesday evening, and we literally sat at the table for three hours and talked about the Lord and prayer and listened to the stories of the way God was moving and working in Uganda and South Sudan. And when Carol first went there over 19 years ago, being a third-generation missionary, her parents were missionaries, to, or grandparents were missionaries in China, and they knew Watchman Nee. Well, that was enough for me. I was so excited. Oh, yeah. they knew Watchman Nee. And so we, we talked a lot about that. And then she actually was raised in the Philippines. Her parents were missionaries in the Philippines. Her father worked with Wycliffe Bible translators and translated the Bible into the language of the people there. And they literally ministered to terrorists and their families in the Philippines. And then now here she is in Uganda and South Sudan. And when she first went to this war-torn area, the U.S. Embassy told her she didn't need to stay. There was not one mission organization that would back her because they said, we can't, it's too dangerous. You're going to come home in a body bag. But instead of that, over 7,000 nationals have been trained through her Bible school. There are house churches and houses of prayer all over Uganda and South Sudan because of the work of Favor International, the ministry that she founded there. One of the most amazing stories she told us was that there are always these rebels who will go in and sometimes they will kill soldiers especially in South Sudan but they dress in the soldiers uniform and so you never know if they're actually soldiers or they're rebel forces who will kill you and the government has given her ministry protection so when they travel through South Sudan, they're in a convoy so that they're not as likely to be ambushed. Well, one of the times they were in a convoy and the convoy stopped and two soldiers jumped into the back seat. Well, there was a national driving her vehicle. She had a pastor from East Tennessee in the front seat who was there preparing for a mission team to come over with her and she was sitting in the middle in the back. Well, these two soldiers jumped in. She very quickly realized they were not actually soldiers, they were rebels. And they had AK-47s and all of this military equipment and one of them pulls out this strip of ammunition and just rubbing his fingers over it. And she said his face was so hard, so hard. And she said, I'm praying the whole time saying, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And they always carry Bibles. And so she starts talking to the man to the left of her, the hardened one, and said, do you mind me asking you, what is your name? And his name was Jacob. She said, Jacob, you have a famous name. Do you have any idea? Your name is in this book. And she reaches back and grabs the Bible. She opens it to Genesis and she says, look, what is this? Is this your name? He says, yes, Jacob. And so from Genesis to Revelation, over three hours, she is talking nonstop to these two rebels sitting on either side of her, telling them about Jesus Christ, going from Genesis to Revelation and why Jacob was so important, that his name was the lineage through which the promised one would come. And when she got to Jesus in the New Testament and said that he came to love and to teach us to love one another, and they literally laid down his life for us, she said, I literally saw his face soften and he looked at me and said, that's what my people need. And then we won't kill each other. When they got to the end of that three-hour trip, she led Jacob to Jesus. And then he took the gospel to his village. She said, they're seeing Muslims come to faith in Christ because God is calling them through dreams that he's giving them, that someone is going to come. And he'll visit a village, and the leader of the village will have a dream that someone's going to come to tell them the truth. And then one of their missionaries, one of their trained leaders, will come in to share the gospel with that village, and they already have their hearts prepared because the Lord is going before them. But do you know why? They are people of prayer. When she first got there, 
She spent six months just praying over the area and established a house of prayer prior to doing any work, any evangelism. She spent that time praying and preparing. Prayer is like going in and tilling up the ground. It's, it's causing that fallow ground to be broken up so that it's ready to receive the seed of the gospel and the seed of God's word. We need to be open to how the Holy Spirit is working all around us. Because as we look at what's happening worldwide, whether it's natural disasters, political upheavals, racial tension, whatever it may be, we know that we're seeing what Jesus called birth pains of the end times. We're at the end of the story. And the obvious question for all of us is what are we doing about it? Are we living on mission? Are we complacently sitting back and just maintaining our comfort while we watch things around us fall apart. That's not what we're called to. We follow a Savior who came to share the truth, the truth that sets people free, the truth that grants life now and for eternity. I don't want to be like Barabbas, Bar Abba, literally means son of the Father, you know that each one of us are like Barabbas? We're rebels at heart. And the son of the father woke up that morning expecting to face death. And yet he went to bed that night a free man. Because the son of the father took his place. We are just like Barabbas. We're rebels at heart. But Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, took our place. And if you've never acknowledged that and humbled yourself before him and asked him to forgive you of your sins, to literally repent of your rebellion and turn toward him, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. That you will see Jesus Christ really is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one can come to the Father except through him. And the grace and mercy of our Abba Father, he has made the way for us through Jesus. And that's the way that we are to be engaged and sharing everywhere we go, faithfully passing it on. But, you know, we can't pass on what we don't possess. So if we're not passionately following Jesus Christ, immersing ourselves in his word, and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be in on what God is doing. He has not called us to just study the word. He's called us to study it and live it. He's called us to live it out. And if we will live it out, people will be drawn to the gospel. They will be drawn to the purpose, the life, the hope that we have because we're in Christ Jesus you know, when the people, the Jews responded when they cried out for Christ to be crucified and they said, his blood shall be on us and on our children, Matthew 27, 25. Thus they called down a curse upon themselves and their children. And their children would be the ones living in Jerusalem 40 years later in 70 AD when Rome would destroy Jerusalem, burning the city, destroying the temple, and then take those they didn't kill captive back to Rome. Israel would not be recognized again as a nation until 1948. Rejecting 
Jesus has severe consequences for us and for our children. Pilate gave in to the crowd. Will you or will you stand up for Jesus? Will you stand for him in your speech, on social media, how you spend your time, how you invest your money? Does your life point others to Jesus? You know, Steve shared with our staff yesterday on the goodness of God. They had staff worship, and he and I were talking about it over the weekend. And as we were talking, he said, what's the first verse that comes to your mind when you think about the goodness of God? And I said, no question, Exodus 33, where Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God responded by saying, I will allow my goodness to pass before you. You know, in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, we know that God created everything. And he declared it good, very good. Evil came into the world through our sin, our rebellion. Because like Barabbas, we were rebels at heart. Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the enemy instead of the word of God the Father. And they chose to sin. And evil entered because of our rebellion. Jesus is being crucified because of his goodness. His goodness. They couldn't handle it. He opened the eyes of the blind. He loosed the tongue of the mute. He opened the ears of the deaf. He raised up the lame and he called forth the dead. Because of his goodness, he was crucified. Goodness went to that cross. Goodness bore our evil in his body. Oh, Father, may your goodness and your glory flow through us to a broken, dark, evil, hurting world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We acknowledge that you alone are good and faithful and true. And Father, we're asking you through the power of your spirit to show us any evil in our hearts, any rebellion that still lurks there, that we might confess it and repent of it. And you are so good and so gracious to completely cleanse us from all sin when we confess it. Lord, I pray for us as believers that we will live with a sense of anticipation and urgency as we await your second coming. I pray that we will live on mission, that we will be, <clears throat> that we will be part of advancing your kingdom, that we will get in on what you're doing, that we will not complacently sit back and just try to be comfortable, but instead we will be out front, living out what we profess that you are King of kings and Lord of lords and that you are coming back. And you have left us with marching orders to make disciples. Father, would you fill us, equip us, and use us that your goodness might be seen. Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for all that you have revealed to us in Jesus Christ. 
Now, Father, let it be a reality in our lives, and we ask it in his name, the name above all names. Amen.